Welcome to True Nature Radio. I'm Lori Regan. And I'm Heiner Fruhoff. Once again, we're thrilled to have our guest with us today. It's Denise Minger, who is a health writer. She's actually extremely knowledgeable. She's an authority on the field of nutrition and can't really say food science. I guess I could say food science, right? <laughs> you can say that if you want to. <laughs> okay. Um, she's she's a great example of somebody who it's not that she's she finished her undergraduate degree, which I'm sorry, Denise, I don't know where that was. That was Northern Arizona University. And then she hasn't pursued her graduate degree yet. Maybe she doesn't need to. She's already <laughs> challenging the authorities because she's like I was saying, a great example of somebody who's really just pursued the passion in her heart and become very knowledgeable, very knowledgeable about statistics and um, research analysis, really reading papers and looking carefully at what's really being said as opposed to maybe what the conclusions would like you to believe. So Denise is the, she's, um, the author, actually, of rawfoodsos.com, her blog. So for those of you who want to get more of the information after today's show, can access her daily information there. She also is in the process of writing a book called Death by Food Pyramid, which should be out in January of 2013, produced or actually uh, published by Mark Sisson, who some of you may be familiar with through his blog, marksdailyapple.com. So welcome, Denise. Thank you so much for having me here. So let's start off by talking about how you got into this field. It's, it seems to me like it's kind of been a whirlwind for you. It, yeah, it has. It actually started, I guess, you could actually trace it back to when I was seven. And that's when I first went vegetarian. And so this was when I was initially launched into the world of food and diet and having to pay attention to what was being put into my mouth and into my body. So the reason I went vegetarian when I was seven was actually because I almost choked on a piece of steak. And I got really I got really phobic of things with meat texture. So I kind of got weird about meat at that point, and I just stopped eating it. And then when I was a little bit older, when I was about 11, um, I spent a year very, very ill with something that was later diagnosed as a weed allergy. So at that point, I had to stop eating wheat, became very conscious of what was on food labels. Then a few years after that, wheat or uh, dairy and soy, I also became allergic to. And so at that point, it was like I couldn't really eat a whole lot of stuff. And so I became uh, very interested in alternative diets and just trying to figure out, you know, what can I actually be eating? Because right now I'm living on kind of like nuts and fruits and vegetables. And at that point, I discovered uh, veganism and the raw food diet. And I spent two years um, as a vegan, first year just as someone eating a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, rice and grains and uh, you know, some fruits and vegetables, nuts, not too unhealthy, but I wasn't feeling too well. And then a year after that, I found raw veganism, which for anyone out there, uh, it's basically raw fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, and that's what you live on. And so after a year of eating that way um, and some initial great health benefits, my health completely failed. And I was a uh, diagnosed with like 16 cavities at one dentist visit, which was in contrast to having a lifetime of perfect dental health. And my hair was falling out. I was completely underweight. I had no muscle mass. And so it was at that point where I really reached almost a crisis in my life. And I had to figure out how am I going to make myself healthy. And from the raw vegan community that I was immersed in at that time, all I was being told was that I was detoxing or I was doing the diet wrong or I was doing something wrong. And it was nothing about the way I was eating that was actually wrong. So uh, 
at that point, I had to start looking outside of the vegan community, and I became really interested in things like Weston A. Price. Uh, for anyone out there, that's uh, Google that, and you'll find a lot of information that runs completely contrary to what we're often told by the government. And uh, I, my mind was just opened at that point, and I became so interested in figuring out what the truth was about food and nutrition and what was the optimal way for humans to be eating. So that's kind of what led up to me starting my blog and everything. And uh, I spent a few years after I unveganized, I guess you could say, uh, still hanging around on vegan forums and raw food places online and trying to help people who were having problems that were kind of the same problems I was having because I just felt like no one was getting accurate information. And so eventually I just decided to start a blog. And it was just one of those things where I was like, you know, I have so much to say and I keep getting banned from these message boards because no one likes me around saying that, you know, animal products are good. And so I was like, well, I'm just going to have my own little slice of Internet space where I can write about whatever I want to write about and not have, have a, to worry about it getting taken down by somebody else. So I started rawfoodsos.com at that point. And um, initially it was just to help vegans kind of gain their health back and figure out what, what was going wrong with them. And uh, during this time as well, there was a book out called The China Study, which is by T. Colin Campbell. It was published in 2006, um, had almost no marketing, but just by word of mouth, it became a bestseller. And this book basically claims that animal products, any kind of animal products, it can be pastured eggs, it can be uh, raw milk, it can be grass-fed meats, all of it contributes to disease heart disease, diabetes, obesity, uh, osteoporosis, all of that. And so the claim, the book's uh, author is, uh, again, T. Colin Campbell, and he's right now he's the professor emeritus at Cornell University. And he's gained quite a bit of a reputation as having this enormous research background and being someone very reliable to go, through, go to for health information. And so um, the fact that he wrote this book and it became so popular convinced a lot of people to go vegan and really set this movement called the plant-based diet. Uh, it made it very popular. And so even people like Bill Clinton are uh, now on this diet based on the findings of this book. So one of the issues I had with this book when I read it was the fact that so many of the claims seemed outrageous to me. And it didn't seem to either match with my personal experience or what I had been reading from other sources and scientific papers. And it just didn't make sense to me that animal products, which have been part of the human diet since our existence, for our entire existence, uh, would suddenly be causing these epidemics of disease that we've only recently been seeing. So I went to... Uh, I went through the book and I basically decided, well, I have a lot of time on my hands right now. I'm going to critique this thing. I'm going to figure out what's going on with it. And I'm going to put whatever I have online on my blog. And at this time, I had maybe five blog readers. And I think that four of them were my mother on different computers. <laughs> <laughs> and so I didn't expect this thing to uh, really get much publicity. But I just wanted to do it for my own sanity, really. I just wanted to figure out what the truth was, because that's my thing. I just like to know what's actually going on. So um, for anyone who's not familiar with the China Study book, uh, it has kind of several different parts, but the two main ones are um, some of the, the research that Campbell draws from is from a large project called the China Oxford Cornell Project, and it's also called the China Study, and that's where the book gets its name from. And this was a huge observational study um, epidemiology that was conducted over the span of 20 years in rural China. And what it did was it collected data from 65 rural counties in China about diet, lifestyle, different uh, 
different lifestyle variables like drinking, smoking, different blood values, and how they related to mortality statistics in China. And so this, the um, findings basically tried to link all these different kinds of diet variables to different kinds of mortality variables to see how diet was influencing disease. And Campbell's claim in his book was that this huge study showed hands down that all of the animal products people were consuming were contributing to disease. And he was saying that the more vegan you can become, the healthier you will be. And so I went back to the actual data for this China study, and it's published um, separately from Campbell's book. There's a book called China, or no, Diet, Lifestyle, and Mortality in China. And it's a giant monograph, 900 pages of just numbers and correlations and everything that was produced by the study. And so I spent about two or three months literally passing out on my desk at night, just reading this book and dog-earing things and making connections and trying to figure out what the data was saying. And what I found by the time I was done looking at all the numbers was that Campbell's claims in the book were completely different than what that actual data was saying. And it was so shocking to me that I had to write about it on my blog. And so I spent a long time just almost annoying detail, just saying this is what the book said in camp. This is what Campbell said in his book. This is what the data actually said. This is what Campbell said in his book. This is what the data actually said, just comparing those things. And so I put that on my blog, um, I think it was July of 2010. And on top of that, I looked at some other things that had been in the China study book, like um, some of Campbell's earlier research he had done on rats, where he decided that animal protein is a carcinogen because under certain contexts, when rats are exposed to aflatoxin, feeding them more protein from an animal source seemed to promote cancer growth. And I had a lot of issues with this as well because um, the protein he was using was casein, which has completely different properties than another milk protein called whey, which tends to be anti-cancer. And there are a lot of issues with that as well. But I really like to focus on all the data. There is a, this is a very interesting point, Denise. Um, um, the China study, by the way, is uh, I have a personal relationship too because when I lived in China for the second time for extended period of time in my compound in uh, Chengdu, uh, the main city in Sichuan province, there was a researcher from Cornell University wow. who was part of that study and who explained and said this is one of the very few places in the world where you can uh, have this kind of research where like uh, people have very similar diets, which is completely different in the United States, where mm -hmm. the whole village eats the same thing, but then 50 miles down the road is another village. And the only difference in their diet is they eat a lot of garlic and the others don't, <laughs> for instance. And so you have easier access to studying it. But much closer to home is that my mother, after reading uh, Campbell's book about the China study, has decided to become a vegan. Uh -huh. And is uh, because in Chinese medicine itself, First of all, the uh, cooking of food is important because you are bringing warmth, yangqi, to it, uh, something that otherwise um, your body needs to pr produce. Mm -hmm. So there is a, 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 a light or so that gets – it's not just like you denaturizing the food in the cooking process, but you're actually adding a kind of warmth to it mm -hmm. that your body can then save to – 
treat disease. And then there's also uh, meat is almost considered to be healthy meat, of course, as a medicine. Uh, the xueruzhipin, as the Chinese call that, is like things that are made from flesh and blood. While you need to use them very respectfully, including in medicine, uh, they can do certain things that uh, plants and weeds, etc., can't do in the diet as well elsewhere. Yeah. But um, I'm my function in my field is more like a philosopher of medicine where I truly think that modern science very often is a little bit like a, a religion. It's just another belief system where, you know, and it keeps changing its mind about things. And nobody actually has the patience or the knowledge uh, of actually pouring over the actual data. So I'm extremely uh, grateful uh, that you did that. And from a... Um, personal perspective when my mother-in-law says, well, you should change your diet to be vegan because the Cleveland Heart Clinic has shown if your mm -hmm. cholesterol is below 150 and even, you know, you shouldn't take more than even a spoonful of olive oil, which traditionally, you know, like my um, uh, Middle Eastern uh, medical teacher have one of those as well says you know my grandfather lived to be 120 and he downed like a whole glass of olive oil every every morning and you know and, uh, Dr. Ornish uh, mm -hmm. in his writings or so uh, writing about similar things uh, you know the the philosophical answer won't do so mm -hmm. there is this, because there's always this epithet of science that then gets lifted up in conversations like that, but it's the, the scientific evidence. So mm -hmm. from your poring over this data, uh, what, what, what other picture did you see uh, that can perhaps shed another light on, on, on these kind of uh, truths? Well, what I found from looking at the data, and let me just put a disclaimer out there that this was observational data, which means that it can't really prove cause and effect. It can only show patterns that in science you then are supposed to go and like put into a controlled setting so you can actually manipulate variables. But from the observational data, what I found was that the only food that seemed to have an extremely strong association with any disease was wheat flour with vascular diseases, heart disease and stroke. And this really shocked me, and I actually didn't say too much about it in the critique that I initially posted on my blog. But people who read the critique were so interested in this. It was like a paragraph that I wrote about this one part of the study um, that I actually went back and I looked at that, that particular part of it in more detail. And I ran some more statistics uh, myself. I did a more in-depth study of this particular variable, wheat flour, and its relation to disease. And what I found was that wheat flour... Even when I tried to adjust for confounding variables in the data, wheat flour remained robust in its association with heart disease, which means that things like other fats or, or other foods, um, any other uh, things that people were eating, any other lifestyle variable, wasn't responsible for that association. It, was, it looked like it was very much wheat flour. So I'm not going to say that wheat, hands down, causes heart disease, but I think that the fact that that one thing was so prominent in the data Yet this entire book was written about something that actually had no real uh, basis in the data of the China study. Um, I thought that was very unusual, and I thought that that point deserved more attention. 
And uh, it was actually a little bit later after I had put this stuff up on my blog that I went back to some of the peer-reviewed research that was based on the China study, some of it by Campbell himself. And I found that there were actually already papers out there that had highlighted this correlation between wheat flour and heart disease. And in fact, Campbell himself had proposed a biological mechanism for which wheat flour might be contributing to high triglycerides and weight gain and other things that would lead to heart disease. And um, I was really surprised that that mention didn't get what well, it didn't appear in his book anywhere. And so I was pretty upset by the fact that in all this data, there was really no clear association between animal products and disease. Just there wasn't. It, you, the only way that you could kind of forge a connection, and this is how Campbell did it in his book, was by saying that animal protein is associated with higher cholesterol in the data, then higher cholesterol is associated with certain cancers in the data. Actually wasn't associated with heart disease, which was interesting. But by uh, finding that chain of variables, he then tried to claim that animal protein specifically was associated with cancer, even though if you look at animal protein itself and cancer itself, there was no link. So it was kind of like you had to draw in other things to make this connection, which I found was kind of suspicious. <laughs> and so, Denise, presumably that led you into the line of thinking that has led into writing your book. So can you give yeah. us some ideas about or give us a sense of what your book is about and why you chose the title and sure. what the topic is? <laughs> yeah, um, my book is called Death by Food Pyramid, and it – it's kind of a blend of many things, but this is basically the book that I wish that I had had many years ago. Because I think one of the biggest problems people face as they try to navigate the world of nutrition is that there are so many conflicting claims out there. Even if you open a newspaper, one day you're going to hear, eggs cause diabetes. The next day you're going to hear, eggs prevent diabetes. One day you're going to hear, coffee causes cancer. The next day you're going to hear, coffee prevents cancer. And I think it just baffles people and gives us the sense that there's no scientific consensus on anything. And how do you possibly understand this as a layperson? How do you navigate this strange world of things? How do you figure out what to eat? And so Death by Food Pyramid, it really does two things. The first part of it, the first element, is that uh, it traces our the um, political and scientific history of our food guides. And um, most people are familiar with the food pyramid image because it was spammed over the entire country when it first came out in 1992. It really was the USDA's hugest project at that point. And uh, so most of us grew up with this vision of this pyramid emblazed in our retinas. And we see the 6 to 11 servings of grains as what we should be eating as the basis of our diet. And uh, uh, the pyramid is actually retired in 2005 and replaced by some other food guides. But a lot of people don't even know that. A lot of people still think that the food pyramid is the go-to image. And in fact, it's still taught by a lot of nutritionists to people who are uh, trying to improve their diets. So my issue with the food pyramid specifically, is that it was not based on sound science at all. It was based almost, I won't say entirely, but largely on a lot of political elements that were going on in the time. And it's it wasn't sculpted by scientific thought so much as political lobbying and so much as the food industries who needed to get their products uh, more profitable and to have that be shoved at more Americans so that they could make more money. And so the food pyramid image to me is the symbol it's almost, in fact, it is a symbol for everything that's wrong with our country's way of thinking about food. And so I named this, my book, Death by Food Pyramid, because I feel like this particular thing and what it represents is really the downfall for a lot of people's health. And so what the book actually does is, uh, 
along with tracing some of that bad science and corrupt public policy, it uh, goes through some of our landmark studies that have basically built our knowledge of nutrition. And it takes them apart kind of in the same way that I tried to take apart the China study. And it shows people step by step in a really easy, non-science, scary way um, what's going on with the data. What is, what is the actual science behind the claims that we're hearing? And my goal is to make this extremely accessible to people who hate math, who hate science, or people who love math and love science, to anybody basically who just is interested in understanding what health is and how we can get it. And um, so that's kind of the outline of my book. But uh, and I was, I think I've been talking to you and several people at this point about this. I've actually delayed some of the publication dates that we had originally planned because I've come across some things that are so incredibly interesting about the political history in particular. And these are things that they sound like they could be one of those tinfoil hat conspiracy theories, but they're actually true. And that's what amazes me. And um, one of those things is that the actual food pyramid was based on uh, some things that nutritionists had established about 14 years earlier in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And uh, basically in the back here, well, I'll back up for a little bit and I'll say um, our food guide history started in 1916. That was the first time the government ever told us what to be eating. And at that point, the word vitamin had only recently come into existence. Most people didn't understand what all the magical stuff in food was and what how it would help us, but they just knew that if you didn't eat, you know, citrus, you'd get scurvy or, you know, there were just some uh, very vague understandings of what was in food and how it kind of influenced health. And so the goals at that point was to get uh, Americans eating as big a variety and as much food as possible because the issues in the early 1900s were malnutrition and deficiency. People didn't have to worry as much about heart disease and cancer and strokes because that wasn't what was killing people. People were dying of infectious disease and other things before that kind of thing would kill them. So it wasn't until after World War II when uh, um, chronic disease, you know, cancer, heart disease, really started taking hold and people started dying from these things instead. So uh, as this was becoming a bigger and bigger issue, in the 1970s, the government decided that something needed to be done to produce uh, um, better health for the American public because it was becoming very clear that there were strong links between diet and disease. And this was still kind of in its infancy in terms of being studied, but there was a strong connection between um, certain foods and poor health outcomes. And so in the 1970s, and specifically in 1977, something called the McGovern Report came out. And uh, for anyone who's not familiar with this, it was basically the first time Americans had ever been told to reduce their fat consumption, to eat a low-fat diet, um, to eat more whole grains, more fruits and vegetables, and to reduce sodium and cholesterol. And those are kind of still the standard guidelines we hear from the, from the government. But in 1977, this was the first time it had ever been officially declared. And uh, so once this was out there, the government was in a jam because they needed to produce a new food guide that adhered to these guidelines to apparently supposedly help Americans. And uh, so the, in the late 1970s, um, a group of nutritionists were hired to basically design some kind of food plan to be given to the American public. And um, so one of these 
nutritionist was a woman named Louise Light, who I had never heard of before I started writing this book. And most people have never heard of her, as I've recently discovered, trying to get more information on her. But she was one of the original nutritionists who actually went to scientific publications, organized meetings of uh, experts who are experts in the fields of nutrition and biochemistry and agricultural production as well, and had them all meet and just hash out what Americans should be eating. And what she found based on science, before any political stuff came out, was that a diet based on fruits and vegetables, cold-pressed fats, very limited amount of grains, two to three servings maximum each day is what she recommended, and um, smaller amounts of meat and dairy as well. She found that that would, based on the science of that time, would point uh, Americans into the direction of better health. And so she submitted this food plan uh, to the Secretary of Agriculture at that time to get it approved. And when it came back to her, it had been completely corrupted. Suddenly, the two to three servings of grains, which she had put as kind of a limited portion in the diet, you know, you don't want to eat too much starch because at that time she felt the science pointed in the direction of saying too much starch would actually contribute to disease. Instead of having that tiny portion of grains, it became the base of the food guide, six to 11 servings each day. There was no scientific basis for doing that. Do you None. know if there was any indication at that point of this association that you talked about in the China study between wheat and heart disease? Was there any indication at all that you found? I don't think so. In fact, I don't think that... Um, it was looked at. Yeah, I don't think it was looked at at that point. In fact, the China study hadn't been completed yet. So that this didn't come out till quite a bit later. But what's really interesting is... The climate of the grain industry at the time during the 70s was very unusual, and it started with something called um, the Great Grain Robbery in the early 1970s, where the Soviet Union had bought a whole bunch of U.S. grain um, as livestock feed for uh, for their areas and for their people. And um, right after that, America suffered from several years of bumper crops, where there was just too much grain and Farmers couldn't sell all of it, so they were losing money. And then by the late 1970s, something really needed to be done um, to help the grain farmers, I guess, uh, get more profit and stay afloat. And at this time, the person who was Secretary of Agriculture, which is like the head honcho at the USDA, he was a guy named Bob Berglund. And along with being a former wheat farmer himself, he was getting um, threatened by food industries and by farmers. Um, to the point of where he would actually have to crawl out of his bathroom window of his office at work to get home because people were waiting to get him at the front of it. And uh, basically, farmers were so incredibly upset that they were losing money, and they really wanted him to do something to help them. And I'm still, to be honest, I'm still trying to figure out how all of this works together, and I'm truly trying to synthesize all the information I've found so far. Um, but what I can tell at this point is that there was an incredible need to increase grain consumption among Americans right at the time when this food guide was being developed. And I'm pretty sure that the largest reason that uh, that food pyramid that Louise Light submitted was so corrupted was because um, the government needed Americans to eat more grains. And the easiest way to do that was to put it in public policy. Fascinating, Denise. Um, for our listeners, since we're coming to the end of our show very quickly, um, after looking at this entire spectrum of uh, diet recommendations from raw food diet on one side all the way to the Atkins diet with lots of meat, uh, on the other side, uh, what do you think is sort of the common f- 
sense approach to to a healthy diet and also something that helped you in your particular uh, case uh, to re uh, road to recovery here? Okay. Um, let me start by saying that I think that humans really can thrive on a wide range of diets. And it's really a hallmark of our species to be able to adapt to different things and to be able to make food out of things that really don't even seem like food when we find them in nature. And uh, so based on that, I don't think there's a single optimal diet that will work for everyone. And I do think genetics and various other things play a role in this. Um, but just from a nutritional standpoint, from everything that I've read basically in the past 10 years, I would say the biggest things that people can do to promote their own health, first of all, limit polyunsaturated fats, vegetable oils like corn oil, um, soybean oil, that sort of thing, things that are very high in what I call PUFAs, polyunsaturated fats, um, because these, this is really the newest thing, to, the newest addition to the American diet. And as far as I can tell, all signs point to this factor, this increase of our polyunsaturated fat consumption, um, to being one of the leading causes behind heart disease and cancer. And that's another subject <laughs> that I, I don't mm -hmm. think we have time to go into. But uh, basically, omit those fats, fo focus on monounsaturated and saturated fats, um, olive oil, coconut oil, those kinds of traditional oils that have been part of the human diet in different cultures for a long, long time. Um, along with that whole food diet, for sure, the things that were not in existence 50 years ago are probably not things that you should be eating right now. If your grandma... No Twinkies? No Twinkies. I mean, if you want to cheat with a Twinkie, it probably won't kill you, but I would say don't, don't base your diet on a Twinkie. Um, and the other thing is, a, and I say this as a former vegan especially, some intake of nutrient-dense animal foods. And I don't just mean a steak. I mean things that are very, very rich in micronutrients like shellfish, um, uh, dairy products that are full fat and uh, rich, rich source of fat-soluble vitamins. Um, organ meats are incredibly nutritious, and I think that it's really a shame that most people don't even eat them anymore because they're weird or whatever. And um, so even for somebody who wants to eat a diet that's mostly plants, including some source of these foods, and I should also include eggs, pastured eggs on that too, um, can really fill in the missing holes that plants cannot provide. And so if you follow just those basic guidelines, I think you have a lot of flexibility. Um, I'm kind of on the fence about grains. I think that if you eat grains, they should be properly prepared, fermented, soaked, that sort of thing. Um, probably just don't, don't eat loaves of Wonder Bread or anything, but that goes again with the whole foods part of the diet. Um, and apart from that, I think it just takes listening to your body and tinkering and seeing how you respond to different things because what works for one person is not always going to work for another person. Right, and even for the same person over time. Exactly. Right? They have to pay attention to the changes that are needed. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with us today, Denise. Thank you so much for having me. You gave us information that would provide us with um, the start for 10 more subject for 10 more shows. So uh, hopefully we will have you back soon. Um, but that's it for today. Thanks for being with us at True Nature Radio. I'm Laurie Regan. And I'm Heiner Fruhoff. If you're interested in more from Denise Minger, who is a health writer, uh, look for her upcoming book due to come out in January of 2013, Death by Food Pyramid, or go to her blog, rawfoodsos.com. If you're interested in pursuing 
natural healthcare topics deeper, maybe as a future career, go to the website of National College of Natural Medicine, ncnm.edu. And if you're interested in topics that are Chinese medicine specific, go to classicalchinesemedicine.org as a resource for more information. Music